Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. What's up, guys? How are you guys doing tonight? So Pete just said it, but if you haven't met me, my name is John Barry. I graduated from UVA in 2018, which is a little time ago, you know. Um, I graduated with a degree in East European and Russian Studies and Foreign Affairs, so that is a handful of words that cost a whole lot of money. Um, Yeah, you you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, So I've been on pastoral staff. I've had the joy of being on pastoral staff since 2019. And like I said, it has truly been a joy. And so I am so excited to be with you guys tonight. So throughout the semester, we have been walking through the book of Mark, and it has been truly amazing. We have seen Jesus do some wild things. We have seen him heal people. We have seen him feed thousands with just a few loaves of bread and a couple fish, and we've even seen him calm storms. Um, And not only have we seen him do amazing acts of power, but we have also gotten to see a little bit about who this king is and what this kingdom that he is establishing is. So we've learned that it is a kingdom of healing, that it is a kingdom of justice, that it is a kingdom of service. And we've built up all these expectations of what that is going to mean and that we've walked with the disciples. But we have seen that Jesus is some kind of king. And we have seen these moves of power and it has built up our expectations and the expectations of the disciples. So, so far Jesus has exceeded our expectations. But tonight, Jesus is going to defy the expectations that the disciples had placed on him. So, Something that you guys should know about me is I love sweets. How many sweets people are there in the rooms? Okay. I'm surprised that not everybody is raising their hands. I guess some of you guys are more like salty snacks out there. But I love sweets, cookies, ice cream, eclairs, anything will do. Um, Yeah, I know, right? They're they're very good. I know, that was a little bougie. Um, But yeah, no, I love it all. I love it all. But one thing that is hard to beat is my aunt's chocolate chip cookies. So transport yourself back to seven-year-old little John sitting at the table. A plate of fresh cookies comes onto the table. It's four o'clock. It's right before dinner. And I'm just inside. I'm like, oh, I really want to have some of those cookies. And so you're about to ask your aunt, can I have some of those cookies? To which you expect her to reply, that's going to ruin your dinner. And you're like, what does my dinner have to do with these cookies? But to your surprise, she says yes. And so the anticipation grows, Your mouth starts to, my mouth starts to water, and I pick up this cookie, and I take a bite, and it's a little different than I expect it to be. Oh, you guys know where this is going, don't you? You know where this is going. It's a little more chewy, a little more gritty, and oh my goodness, those little black dots are not chocolate chips, they are raisins, it is an oatmeal raisin cookie, and I, wait, oh, am I getting some cheers in here? Oh, that is wild. That is real wild. Yeah, no, that was not a cheer from seven-year-old John. Um, I felt betrayed. I was like, how could you do this to me? I mean, look at that. It's deceptive. You know, I don't, I don't even think that oatmeal raisin cookies are bad. I'm just like, they're deceptive. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. See, our expectations can make a world of difference. Yeah, and so maybe I wasn't that upset. I was still getting sweets, right? I think most of us can get over 
the moments when expectations, small expectations, are not met. But what happens when there's more on the line than just 300 calories of deliciousness? Throughout the book of Mark, we've been building up this expectation of who Jesus is, that he is a king, that he is powerful, that he is king over sickness, that he is king over storms. And so far, he's exceeded all of the disciples' expectations. But tonight, he's going to defy their expectation because they have an expectation that he will come in and rule. The disciples are waiting for him to come in and tear down these kingdoms of darkness. But we're going to, so we're going to see what Jesus says. So will you guys turn with me to Mark 8? So like I said, we're going to get into talking about what the, what the disciples were expecting of Jesus. But first we're going to take a little, a little detour. It's actually in the same chapter. But it's a little bit of a strange story. But I think that it can add some context to tonight. So again, we're going to be in Mark 8, starting in verse 22. And it says this. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Wow, this is a miracle. This man's sight is restored and his life will never be the same. But at the same time, I feel like I have some questions as I come into this. First of all, why do you have to spit on his eyes? That just seems a little weird, right, Jesus? But second of all, and most of all, wait a second, why didn't it work the first time? Like for real, did... Did something go wrong? Did Jesus do something wrong? Did he run out of juice? Did he run out of power? We've already seen so many moments and demonstrations of Jesus' power that I really don't think that that is what is going on in this passage. Maybe Jesus is trying to be intentional. Maybe he's trying to teach his disciples something. And maybe Mark is trying to tune into that exact same thing. So, we have these questions. We're going to hold them in tension for a little bit, and we're going to keep going in the passage. But for now, I want us to just keep the story in our mind that this man needed two touches from Jesus to see clearly. So let's keep reading in verse 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. See, all of these people that, they are men- that these other people are mentioning are people that would be very revered in the Hebrew community. And so it is a thing of honor that they're saying that this is who Jesus is. But Jesus isn't just worrying about what, everybody is, what everyone else is saying about him. He actually wants to know what the disciples are saying about him. So let's keep reading Um, In verse 28 and 29, they replied, But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Yes, Peter, finally. 
Someone gets it. Someone finally sees Jesus for who he is. And at this moment, everyone who's reading this is jumping out of their seats and they're saying, yes, Peter, you get it. This is the man that we've been waiting for. There is so much to unpack about Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. But I want to start with what Peter probably would have meant by the word Messiah. See, in the Jewish faith and community, the Messiah would have meant the anointed one by God. Another word for Messiah is the Christ. Um, I used to think that Jesus Christ was just Jesus' last name. Are any of you guys with me? Yeah, no, I feel like it's a pretty common mistake. But it's not actually his last name, it is actually his title. So Messiah or Christ, it means the anointed one of God. And this title would often be for a king or for a priest. Um, And it would have meant that they were anointed by God, chosen by God, consecrated for service to God, and given the power of God for a particular task. But by the time of the Old Testament completing, and by the time of Jesus, the Messiah carried an even greater significance than just a king or a priest. The Messiah was the anointed one of God who would come and he would rescue the Hebrew people from oppression and ultimately rule over them in a beautiful and harmonious kingdom. Peter gets it in this moment. He sees Jesus. He's seen the power with which Jesus has walked and he knows who he is. So to understand the weight of Peter's claim, I want to read from Daniel 7 and it should be up on the screen. But it says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. This term son of man is often the title that Jesus would have used to describe himself. So there's one like a son of man coming on the clouds with heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. The ancient of days would have been a term for God the Father. But the passage continues to talk about this son of man. And it says this. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples, every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Peter has seen Jesus, and he gets it. He gets that this man is the Messiah. He's the anointed one of God that is going to pull the Hebrew people out of oppression. He's going to free them from the Romans. And so he doesn't get that he's just aching. He gets that he's the Messiah. And all the disciples are probably right at the edge of their seat saying, what is Jesus going to say next? Is he going to tell us about, more about this kingdom that he's bringing? Is he going to tell us how he's going to defeat Herod, defeat the Romans, and t- tear down this kingdom of darkness? Let's keep reading. In verse 31, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Wait, what? I imagine the disciples looking around confused. Jesus, what do you mean that the Son of Man must suffer? You're the anointed one of God. You have the power of God backing you. What does it mean that you have to suffer? Haven't you read Daniel 7? But Jesus continues. The Son of Man will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. No, Jesus. You're going to lead the elders, lead the teachers of the law, lead the chief chief priests. They will follow you. You are the anointed one of God. But then Jesus continues. 
And he says, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. No, if you die, how are you ever going to rescue us from the Romans? How are you ever going to establish this kingdom that you have taught us so much about? It's at this moment that the expectations of Peter, the expectations of the disciples, and the expectations of all of the Hebrew people come crashing down. And in this moment, Peter's had enough. So he pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Peter wanted the kingdom of God to come in power. And so maybe something that was running through Peter's mind was, no, Jesus, I know that this task seems daunting, but I believe you can do it. I've seen you work in power. I believe that you can take down the Romans. But Jesus' response is shocking. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely the concerns of, of, but merely human concerns. Oh my gosh. Jesus, I know he just rebuked you, but did you really have to call him Satan? Like, that seems a little excessive to me, doesn't it? Can you imagine the tension in that room? But I love the way that the NLT puts this verse. It says, Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Then reprimanded Peter, get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Is Jesus' miracle earlier in the chapter starting to make a little more sense? You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Just as the blind man could, not, could see but not clearly Peter is beginning to see Jesus. He sees the Messiah, the one who walks in power and the anointing of God. But just like the blind man, Peter needs a second touch from Jesus. To see Jesus clearly is not just to see his crown, but it is to see his cross. It's not just to see the power that walks in, that Jesus walks in and the kingdom that he's bringing, but it is to see how he is bringing that kingdom. To see Jesus clearly is not just to see that he is a king, but it's to see the kind of king he is going to be. That he is going to be a king that suffers. If he were looking with human eyes, maybe he would have marched right into Rome, he would have looked at Caesar and he would have said, you're done. Your kingdom is a kingdom of darkness and I am going to establish a kingdom of light. And he would have established an earthly rule that would have been just and good. But that wasn't enough. The problem was way too big for that. The brokenness of this world is way too deep. And can't we see that? When we look at the problems and the brokenness of this world, one earthly ruler is not enough to solve it. And even when we look at the brokenness of our own hearts, the sin, we need need someone more than just a person to rescue us. When someone does wrong against another person, it's like a cost is accrued and a debt accumulates. And do you guys feel that? That when someone wrongs you, it feels like something has been taken from you? That is the debt that humanity bears. Sin accrues a debt for us 
And that debt not only is just person to person, but it's actually systemic. It's something that is bled into every facet of our world. And it leads to harm for people and hurt. And that sin, that debt, leads us farther and farther away from God to the point where we wouldn't even be the kind of people that could enjoy an eternity with him. It seems like our only option is to pay this enormous debt ourselves and experience that separation from God. But that's where Jesus steps in. That is why Jesus had to die In the cross, all of the wrongdoing and sin that has accumulated for all of human history finds its payment. Jesus didn't owe anyone anything. And yet in dying, he paid for us all. And man, isn't the cross just a shocking illustration of the brokenness of this world that we were able to take a man who was innocent, who was completely innocent, and crucify him? Tim Keller puts it this way. In condemning Jesus, the world was not con- the, in condemning Jesus, the world was condemning itself. Jesus' death demonstrates not only the bankruptcy of the world, but it also reveals the character of God and of his kingdom. Jesus' death was not a failure. By submitting to death as a penalty, he broke its hold on him and on us. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. Thank God it didn't just end in payment for our debt. That in the cross, Jesus took our debt, but in the resurrection, he overcame the power of death. A new kingdom is going to require a new king who does something that no one else has ever done. He must die so that he can pay our debt and open up a new way forward. So that the the brokenness of this world is not just limited for a moment, but that Jesus can actually bring resurrection life into every piece. Not just a respite from the brokenness, but an actual resurrection from the brokenness. Peter needs a second touch of Jesus so that he can see that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is the one who suffered to mend the whole thing. We need freedoms not just from the Romans, but from the debt that all of us bear. And he's showing He's showing Peter and he's showing all of us that our freedom will come through Jesus' suffering. To see Jesus clearly is not just to see his crown, but it is to see his cross. Jesus is reframing all of these expectations that the disciples would have had for him. But he's also offering them an invitation. So in this moment, Jesus calls over all of his disciples And he says this in verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Just as the Messiah had to take up his cross to save us, he is calling us to follow him. 
He continues in verse 35 to say this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus didn't hold on to his life. He let it go so that he could save us. And he invites all of his followers to experience that same death for his sake. But in turn, experience true life, full life, eternal life. He's saying that there's literally nothing that the world can offer that is worth our souls. No fame, no money, no job, no relationship, none of it is worth it in comparison to the life that Jesus is offering. And for the disciples, this wasn't just metaphorical. This wasn't just hypothetical. This might have been the first time that they were hearing it, and it would have been shocking to them. But after Jesus would go, die on the cross, and be resurrected from the dead, the disciples would experience this. Every single one of them would experience isolation from their communities. They would experience suffering in their physical body as a result of following Jesus. And many of them would die for his sake. It's actually shocking how many of them would actually die on a cross. And Peter, the guy who half sees in this passage, who half gets it, he's going to see Jesus so clearly. He himself is going to actually be persecuted. And he's going to die upside down on a cross at the hands of a Roman emperor named Nero. But in the midst of Peter's sufferings, he writes this to his fellow followers of Jesus. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Peter experienced a second touch of Jesus. He saw that this life is not all there is. And he saw clearly the glory of Jesus, his Messiah, who died and rose from the grave. Nothing in the world would compare to that glory for Peter. And right now, Peter is immersed in the clearest vision of Jesus' glory, spending an eternity with Jesus. This is also the context of Mark. Mark is written to a persecuted church around the year 60 AD. They're under that same emperor Nero who who would crucify Peter a few years later. See, Nero made the Christians a scapegoat for this massive fire that had happened in Rome that it's actually believed Nero set himself. But because of that, the Christians that this gospel was written to would have experienced losing jobs because of their faith. They would have experienced severe persecution, even physical suffering, and many of them would have died. Sometimes really, really horrific deaths in the Colosseums for sport. 
And I imagine that, that these believers, these followers of Jesus, they needed to hear this. They needed to hear that the cross that they already knew that they were picking up was worth it. They needed reminders of Jesus' glory and of his resurrection. They needed to be reminded that it was worth it to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. So for the disciples in the early, in the early church to see Jesus as Messiah meant intense suffering. And for many around the world, that is the reality right now. I think about Buddy and Bailey, where they're going right now is one of those places where sometimes to follow Jesus might mean that you will be isolated from your family, you might lose a job, you might even encounter physical suffering. And if there are any in this room that that is going to be the case for, for any of us, then I, I hope this passage is something that we can come back to as a reminder that Jesus is so worth it. But for many of us, that might not be the case. I don't know that all of us are going to be experience physical suffering or we might not even feel that isolated from our community because of Jesus. So what does it mean? What does it mean to pick up our cross and follow Jesus? Well, I think it starts with recognizing that if we want the transformative power of Jesus, that we need to be willing to do anything that he asks. No stop gaps, no half measures, but to truly embrace him, truly embrace what he asks of us, And honestly, sometimes it's going to feel like death. It's going to feel like picking up our cross and following Jesus because it's going to be really hard sometimes. Even those small moments that I have of like, should I I talk about Jesus with this person? Should I share my thoughts on who Jesus is? And that moment, it sometimes is so hard. It feels like picking up a cross. But that's what it might mean. It might mean taking a different job than you expect. It might mean moving to a different part of town that's a lot harder because Jesus has a plan for that part of town that he wants you to be a part of. It might mean ending a relationship because Jesus has something else in store for you. It might mean loving someone that is not going to be willing to love and care for you. And there's going to be moments where that might feel like it is making us ostracized from our our friends or our communities. But it's worth it. In picking up our cross and experiencing what Jesus experienced, we will experience the life that he gives. The worship band can come up now. There's a C.S. Lewis quote that I love and it's going to be on the screen And it talks about this process. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. We need the cross. Not because we love pain. I'm the first to say I hate pain. (laughs) 
It's pretty terrible sometimes. That's not why we need the cross. But we need it because that is the means of salvation. That was the means of Jesus' salvation that he offers as a gift to us. And that is the way that we model Jesus. We get to see Jesus as king in his power. But we need to see him as king in his sufferings. And accept his invitation to follow him and pick up our cross. So I'm going to come to a close, but first I want to ask a few questions. They're going to be up on the screen. But the first is where do we need a second touch of Jesus to see him more fully? Do we see the power of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus? Do we see the wonderful teachings that bring freedom to people? But do we also see the necessity of his suffering? Do we really believe that the debt that we have accumulated as humanity needs the death of Jesus? Do we look at the world and just think it needs a little respite from the suffering or do we believe that it needs to be recreated inside out? Or do we struggle to believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, it should actually change how we live? For those of you in this room who are not following Jesus yet, I want you to ask, I want to ask you to ask this question of Jesus. Who is he? Who does Jesus say he is? Pursue that answer in community. Pursue that answer through reading the Bible. Ask Jesus who he is. Ask him to reveal himself. And I believe that he will. For those of us who feel like we have had that second touch of Jesus, that we see Jesus clearly as not just our Messiah who walks in power, but also one who has walked in suffering. I want to ask you, what does it mean to pick up your cross? Is it talking to a hallmate about Jesus, even though they might think you're kind of weird? Is it being willing to delete that app because you know that it doesn't lead you to more Christ-likeness? Does it mean that you choose a different major because you feel like that is the difference that God wants you to make in this world, that he wants to use something different than you intended? Or are we willing to love people that will give us nothing in return? There's a picture circulating on the internet that I really love. Um, (laughs) It's really tender, isn't it? It's this little girl who sees Jesus bearing his cross and runs up to this cross and wants to help Jesus bear this cross. But one of the things that is most striking about this image is just the reality that she's not really doing much work, honestly. (laughs) That Jesus is really the one who's bearing the weight. But I think that's such a beautiful image of what this passage means. That that cross is going to feel heavy to us at times. To pick up our cross and to follow Jesus is not going to be easy. But there's this beautiful realization of the fact that what Jesus bore on our behalf is so much greater. I want to end with a verse. It comes out of Philippians 3. It says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
gonna take a moment to pray for you guys and then we're gonna enter into a time of worship. And as we enter into that time of musical worship, this is a moment for us to respond to Jesus. So whether that means sitting down in your seats and journaling of what it might mean to see Jesus more clearly or what it might mean to pick up our cross, I want you to take that time to truly ask Jesus what what he would desire in this moment. Or if that means that you come to the front and you kneel down, sometimes I literally have to get in a physical posture to get my soul in the right position before God. That I have to literally kneel down or I have to literally raise my hands because I just need to recognize that my soul, my body and my soul need to come into alignment. And so we're going to take a a moment to respond. I want to pray for you guys first. Jesus, we recognize you in your power, Jesus. We recognize that you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one of God that has come to bring salvation to us, Jesus. That has come to bring victory. And Jesus, we thank you that you did that in the most unlikely way, that you did that through a cross. You did that through suffering. And so Jesus... We say that we need you in this moment. We need you to be our model, Jesus, that we need to pick up our cross and follow you. And so, Jesus, I pray right now in this moment, Jesus, that that people would have an image in their mind that is from you, Holy Spirit, of what it would mean to pick up their cross and follow you. And Jesus, I pray that it wouldn't just end in suffering in their mind, but that you would also give them a vision of the beauty, Lord, of the beauty that you have in store for them, Jesus. Of the fact that when we pick up our cross and follow you, when when we die to those ambitions that we have, Jesus, that we actually get to pick up life, the same life that you showed us that we will pick up. Jesus, you are so worthy. And so, Jesus, we want to declare that worthiness together. Would you guys stand as we respond in worship? If you're comfortable, you can stay seated if you feel like you want to spend some time with Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Jesus, we want to look more like you. Jesus, no matter what that means, we want to look more like you. And so, Jesus, that is our prayer in this moment. That is our prayer as we go out from this place tonight, Jesus. And Jesus, we... Yeah, we do say, we echo the words of that song and we say that if more of you means less of us, Lord, then it is worth it, Jesus. You're so worthy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And now for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face turn upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace as you follow him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have a wonderful week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.